John David Gosh. Born November 12, 1969, Johnny was a paper boy in West Des Moines, Iowa, uh, who disappeared September 5, 1982. He was kidnapped, and as of 2023, there are still no leads, and the case is presumed cold, but is still open. Is Johnny still alive? Did his mother, Noreen Gosh, actually see him, or was she driven mad by the abduction of her son? Let's deep dive into this crazy story. You're listening to Clapped by Fire. You're listening to Clapped by Fire. Hello, I'm Kai Maxwell, your host. Our co-hosts are Sean Eames and John Peterson, and you are listening to Clapped by Fire. We do have an Instagram page. If you're listening to today's story and you want to hop on and look at pictures and a little bit more detail, check us out on Instagram at handle Clapped by Fire Podcast. What is up, Sean? Oh, what's going on, brother? Uh, nothing much. Just a good old Wednesday morning, pouring rain. Right? At least it's not snow, so... I got for that, right? Oh, I, I like the rain, but I, I don't know. They, I think they both have, both have their pros and cons. I, I, I like to wear like warm jackets, super comfy. So uh, that's why I like the snow. But then the rain, it's always just you can't go outside because you're gonna get get wet. So yeah, <laughs> uh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so real fast, uh, John is actually not with us here today. He uh, had to step out for some reasons. But other than that, today is me and Sean, and we're gonna rock today's show. Shit, yeah, bro. If you're new to the podcast, hit that follow button. We're Clap by Fire, a little uh, local uh, Utah podcast starting up. Going to eventually become the best in the game, hopefully. <clears throat> okay, so let's uh, let's get right to it, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Our uh, story takes place on su- Sunday, September whoa, whoa, 5th. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm going to do my news, man. Oh, my bad, my bad, my bad. You, you jump into conclusions. <laughs> Jeez. Okay, so I'm taking the talking stick. Uh, at the beginning of the episode, we just kind of share uh, some stuff we learned in the news. Um, kind of like uh, true crime stuff, interesting facts, uh, general information like that. So I actually saw the story from the Washington Times that uh, they're finding fentanyl-laced pills that are still being sold down in Mexico pharmacies right now. Uh, based on one of our last episodes, the the Tylenol murders, uh, finding that there is um, some pills that are laced right now. Uh, we just talked about this, dude. Yeah, it's becoming a real fucking pill. Um, lots of people are getting sick, overdosing, dying. It's uh, being laced on a lot of different stuff. So I don't know. So I, I've got a question, Sean. Do you remember? So last or the, the that episode we did, the Tylenol murders. Was it fentanyl that was being put in the Tylenol? Do you remember? Uh, I believe it was cyanide. Oh, cyanide. Okay. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm not really sure what fentanyl is. I'm pretty sure it's going to get you sick, and you're probably going to die from it. So uh, just be <laughs> uh, just be careful if you're uh, consuming or buying medications out of Mexico right now. It's uh, kind of sketchy, kind of kind of sad. And no, it's extremely sad, but just kind of sketchy. Right. Yeah, I know. I've read a couple of articles over the last few months of people dying just from fentanyl. It doesn't take much. Uh, Apparently, like, the size of, like, a grain of rice of uh, pure fentanyl will kill you. So, yeah. Interesting. So another story that I found. So this actually happened last year, and this is, like, his year anniversary. But uh, there's a guy that kayaked 
from California to Hawaii. And he did Damn. it in 91 days. Holy hell, dude. I don't know why you do that. That sounds super miserable. I, I, <laughs> I've been out on the ocean many times, get seasick. Um, and when you get like pretty far out there, you know, there's creatures that could come and eat you. And uh, But yeah, he, he kayaked all the way from California to Hawaii in 91 days. Like I said, he did this last year. And uh, this is kind of this story was just uh, regurgitated and thrown out there as like his one year anniversary. But uh, I just think that's super impressive. Ninety one days in a kayak. Have you ever been on a kayak? I go like 10 feet and my arms are cramping. (laughs) I I kayak like rivers and a couple of lakes up here. But man, like across the ocean, 91 days. Hell no. Like. So if wow. you're kayaking all day every day and you have to like take a like use the restroom, how do you do it? Do you just like stand up and lean over the side or <laughs> you just go in the hole, bro? <laughs> <laughs> just like wear like like freaking diapers and crap yourself and then at the end of the day when you're when you're just resting, just you know, take it off. the boat out when you're done. <laughs> throw another one off. <laughs> oh gosh. Yeah, dude, that'd be miserable. I can't even imagine. So uh, cool. along the along the same lines of uh, the ocean, um, another news article that I've seen seen it kind of all over is uh, supposedly there's five thousand miles of a seaweed allergy that's pushing its way towards Florida beaches. What? So if you're planning on going and like hitting that nice warm ocean and. Uh, uh, you know, visiting those nice beaches, uh, this next up, the next upcoming months or the next coming year, you might, uh, you might see a lot of freaking seaweed, a lot and a lot of it. 5,000 miles That's of insane. seaweed is going to be breaching. And, and I guess the current too, cause you know, the Bermuda triangle, I guess the current is what's pushing it over there. So, wow, man. That uh, that seems like a lot of damn seaweed. I've I've been to the ocean many times, and I just remember as a little kid, you'd be like out there swimming, having so much fun. And before you got in, your mom gave you that talk of like, "Hey, there is fish in the ocean, so be careful. Watch out for jellyfish." You'd be swimming, and all of a sudden, you feel something attack you, and you look down, big old seaweed arms like grabbing you, and you're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh man, the ocean always freaked me out, dude. I've actually only ever touched the ocean one time. And it was just with my hand, and that was it, dude. Like, way back in 96, I think, I went to California, ate lunch on Long Beach, and uh, only had a couple minutes to go touch it real quick, and, and then we were off again. So, dude, was, you, uh, you have missed out. I know, right? I know. That's what everybody tells me. But, uh, yeah, it was uh, pretty awesome looking. So, the I just ocean- don't like the ocean and boogie boarding is like that's what every kid does, you know. You just go stand in the water with your little boogie board, hit all the waves coming in. I ain't gonna lie, man. Jaws kind of traumatized me too. Like uh, I, I'm not cool where I'm the bottom of the food chain in that situation. And <laughs> what is what is so. what is that fear of of open dark waters or whatever that type of phobia? Yeah, yeah, yep. Guilty, man. Got that. That's for sure. <laughs> huh, so so little story real fast. Uh I've got a buddy growing up that his family owned a construction business and they, they were pretty well off, but they actually owned a timeshare in Oceanside, California. And so uh, a couple times we would go down there 
and we'd stay for the whole week. And so they, they, their timeshare was literally, um, you'd go to your hotel room, then you'd go down and open the door and you'd probably take 40 or 50 steps and you'd be in the ocean. So cool. You see the ocean right from your window. Absolutely beautiful and gorgeous. And I remember there was these two piers right on the sides. And I remember, you know, you'd get to the ocean, you go do your buggy, your boogie boogie boarding, go play in the ocean, build sandcastles, do all this fun stuff. And then we'd always go play around the piers, but around the piers, you had to be careful because people were fishing off of them. And I remember my friend was like, dude, let's go catch some crabs. And we went over by this one pier and there wasn't really anybody fishing. And so we're down there playing around, you know, chasing the crabs around, yada, yada, yada. And then afterwards we, uh, we got out of the water and we walked all the way up the sand beach and on the, on the road and then came out on the pier and some dude like pulled in this, like this little, like four foot long shark. There's some sharks that, you know, everyone think when they think of sharks, they think of these big, enormous fishes that just, you know, go around destroy and kill everything. Uh, not necessarily the case. There is the sharks that like, they have the flat belly and they lay on, they like to lay on the sand. So he pulled in one of those sharks that was the one that's like laying on his belly. And I just remember, I was like, holy hell, we were, we were down there like 10 minutes ago, dude. It's crazy, man. (laughs) (laughs) Holy macaroni, bro. (laughs) (laughs) So did you ever see any shark attacks or anything like that while you were uh, out there in Kelly? Uh, I've never seen a shark attack. So, so statistically they say that you have a higher chance getting struck by lightning than you do of getting attacked by a shark. Interesting. Not even joking. Look it up. I have gone deep fishing multiple times. Um, but I'm one of those people that, uh, I get horribly seasick and I'm the dude that's blowing chunks over the side and uh, the captain's always out there like, <laughs> everyone say thank you to, to this guy over here. He's luring the fish to the surface, giving him some fish fish food. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Man. I, remember, I remember last time I went uh, deep sea fishing. I had a, so Okay, so I've got a lot of family from like Oregon and uh, like Redding, California. Um, and so, you know, we're very, very, very... Uh, familiar with like the West Coast beaches and and that that we had, we've, we've had family reunions where you know we'd go and just live on the beach for one or two weeks and uh, yeah so I've been I've been deep fishing many times and uh, it, it's super fun but like I said I'm just one of those people I just get horrible motion sickness and it, it's pretty cool going out there they have all these like uh, these machinery where you can I, I don't even know what they're called all these fisher people that are listening are probably like this guy's a freaking idiot the little radar detector where you can detect the patches oh, yeah. of fish so right, what happens yeah. a guy goes out there in his little like boat and he flies around and he'll stop right on top of the, the the schools of fish and then everybody just drops their lines and then you drop it until you hit, feel your line hit the hit the bottom of the ocean floor and then you just start cranking that thing as fast as you can dude and you're just pulling in fish left and right and uh, the, the fish that you catch um if you pay an extra fee they'll like fillet it and give it to you or the fish you catch uh, is donated to them, and they end up going and selling it at like uh, fish food, f- uh, fish markets and stuff like that. So, huh. super fun. That's pretty cool. But when you're out there and everything's moving, yeah, you might uh, you might blow some chunks. So, <laughs> oh man, that's awesome. Other than that, that's pretty much uh, that's pretty much all the news that I've I've, I've been seeing uh, this week. You got any anything interesting you've been seeing in the news? Uh, no, not a whole hell of a lot to be honest with you, man. Uh, yeah, just been working on this and trying to do my best for it. So, nice. 
Well, that being said, uh, let's uh, let's jump right into today's subject and get going with it. All right. Cool. So on Sunday, September 25th in 1982 in West Des Moines, Iowa, uh, Johnny was getting up and ready for his local paper route. Uh, usually Johnny would wake up his father to help him with his paper route, but on this particular Sunday, he decided to let his dad sleep in. He only took his dog, which was a miniature dachshund, uh, named Gretchen, uh, to accompany him, to accompany him. Johnny packed up his red wagon and headed out. Uh, he made his way to the Des Moines register to gather his papers for the route for the day. And this would be the last time that anyone saw Johnny. Some of the other kid carriers would tell police that they had seen him that morning uh, loading his red wagon, and they also mentioned that they had seen him speaking with a man with a two-tone blue hat uh, near the paper drop. Another man, <clears throat> John Rossi, said he saw him talking to a strange man in a blue car and thought that something was off about the situation. When Rossi asked Johnny who he was talking to, Johnny said that the man in the car was asking for directions and thought he could help. Oddly, Rossi had noticed that before the car had drove away, that the driver had turned his dome light on and off in his car three times. Rossi had looked at the plate but couldn't remember the numbers, and when asked later on, Rossi had felt so bad about the incident that he even went under hypnotherapy, and with that he recalled some of the numbers um, and that the car was from Warren County. According to a private investigator hired by the Goshes, as Johnny walked a block north where his route started, a paper boy noticed another man following Gosh. Um, a neighbor heard a door slam and then saw a silver Ford Fairmont speed away northwards from where Johnny's wagon was found. Johnny's parents, John and Noreen Gosh, began receiving phone calls uh, from customers around the area that they had not received their paper that morning which was really odd because Johnny had never missed a paper in the last year of his job and had just received an award because of it. So John left the house and started searching for his son. Um, he traced his route <clears throat> and uh, what he would have walked that morning, and all he found was his red wagon full of newspapers and a handful of rubber bands on the sidewalk. Two blocks from their home, John Fish finished Johnny's route, um, thinking that maybe he got distracted, took off with a friend for a while. Um, but because he had never done this before, uh, he just decided that maybe he'd be back when he got home. Uh, when he finished, when he finished and he went home, Gretchen, the dog was waiting for him at the door. Uh, the goshes immediately went into panic mode and contacted the police and reported John's disappearance, Johnny's disappearance to the police. The police told Noreen that they couldn't enter him as a missing person until 72 hours had passed. To this day, she still blames the police for their roles and their slow reaction time in finding her son. Uh, she claims the police didn't even show up for another 45 minutes after she had called them, and uh, they only lived, were like 10 blocks away. Initially, the police thought that Johnny was just a runaway, but later changed their tune to kidnapping. Although there was no motive and little evidence and no suspects to arrest, Noreen had had enough with the police and hired uh, two private investigators, Jim Rothstein, a retired NYPD detective, and Ted Gunderston, who was a retired FBI agent. Among the other PIs, uh, 
Noreen's PI team suggested that Johnny was kidnapped and forced into child into a child prostitution ring. But the police say that there is no evidence to support that theory. A few months after this, September 1982, uh, disappearance, Noreen Gosh has said her son was spotted in Tulsa, Oklahoma, when a boy yelled to a woman for help before being dragged off by two men. So, let's get into the clapmobile and see what happened. Hop in, boys. It's going to be a good one. So you're telling me you had to wait 72 hours to report a missing person back in the day? Yeah, so way back when they would uh, treat a missing child just like a missing adult. They would wait 72 hours to try to figure out where they were. That seems absolutely ridiculous. Right. I'm giving a total L to the police department even before the story even starts. Holy heck. Yeah. So and it only gets worse. <laughs> there's so many crimes that uh, timing is crucial that within like the first, you know, out two hours of the crime, uh, you know, evidence starts getting like washed away and, and, and stuff like that. So if you're going to wait 72 hours, what do you expect to even find, even if there is any evidence? Right. Probably not much. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So. <clears throat> on August 12th uh, in 1984, also, Eugene Martin, another Des Moines area paper boy, disappeared under similar circumstances. Uh, Eugene was not around the same age. He was 13 and uh, even looked a little bit like Johnny. And just like Johnny, though, he disappeared early on a Sunday morning while delivering papers on the south side of Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, there were e There are even witnesses who say they saw him speaking to a strange man that morning. Noreen was convinced that the two cases were absolutely linked, and one of her PIs predicted the abduction months beforehand, saying that someone, someone would kidnap a paperboy on the south side of Des Moines in the second week of August. The police were grasping at straws at the time and came out saying that they were looking at some five foot nine guy. It was a loner uh, who was between the ages of 30 and 40 years old, and uh, he would be clean-shaven and a medium build, but, you know... Aside from the loner trait they were describing, most middle-aged men in America fit that bill. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> because John, John, of you, have you? Yeah, ever, yeah. Have you ever seen the movie Black Phone? I haven't. No, I heard it's good though. So, if you're listening to this podcast, I recommend going and watch that. What What I'm hearing right now is making me think exactly of the Black Phone. The Black Phone, real fast. It's a, It's a movie that's based off of John Wayne Gacy. But pretty much it was a black van that would drive around and it would kidnap uh, uh, boys, children, and they would leave uh, uh, they would leave a, uh, what is it called? A, a, a boet, a bouquet of uh, like 12 black balloons wherever the child's went missing. What is that? Oh, called? wow. That'd yeah, yeah, exact, yeah. It sounds like the exact same thing, but you know, that, that's crazy, dude. Yeah, it sounds like an awesome movie. I highly recommend checking it out. Checking it out. Lot of a uh, lot of adrenaline. A lot of, uh, but it sounds very very similar to today's story. It's freaking awesome. No, it's oh, not yeah. awesome. It's disgusting. But it's, uh, <clears throat> you, you know what I mean. Come on, guys. I, stop. Just stop I, judging I me. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, 
because of Eugene's disappearance and the paper routes, they all went ahead and shifted away from using children and only would only hire adult carriers after this for a little while. Um, then on another Sunday evening in uh, 1986, another 13-year-old boy disappeared in the area. Mark James Warren. Allen, or Mark James Warren Allen. Sorry, he's got four names. Uh, he told his mother he was going to walk to a friend's house, which is literally across the street on March 29th, 1986, the day before Easter. However, he made it to the neighbor's house and hasn't been seen since. Uh, Mark was first believed to be the third Iowa paper boy to go missing in the 80s, um, but based on early media reporting, er, but Mark was not a paper boy in Des Moines, Iowa. But even now, three day, three decades later, none of these three boy, boys' cases have ever been solved. <clears throat> In 1984, Gosh's photograph appeared alongside with Juanita Lee Estevez on milk cartons across America. They were the second and third abducted children to have their pictures and stories published in this way. The first was Eaton Pats. Do you guys remember the milk carton kids? Uh, always a good start to your morning, eating a bowl of cereal while reading the latest kid abductee. Uh, it's a kind of a sad, sick joke, but... Uh, Honestly, I, I remember doing that many mornings when I was a kid, sitting there eating a bowl of cereal and checking out the back of the milk carton and going, holy hell, like who now, you know? Interesting. I don't, I don't <laughs> know if you're, you're probably way too young for that guy, but yeah. No, nah, I'm not, I'm a Garfield Comics, 1996. There you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In uh, 1985, Noreen Gosh received a letter from Robert Herman Meyer II, uh, 19 of Siganaw, Michigan. Uh, the letter had been signed by Samuel Forbes of... Do as, I'm sorry. Let me rephrase that. The letter had been signed Samuel, Samuel Forbes, Dakota. Uh, so he actually changed his name to that. In the letter, Meyer stated that he was a guard in a motorcycle club when Gosh's son disappeared in September of 1982. According to Meyer... Gosh's son was taken as part of a large child slave ring operated by the club. Meyer claimed he guarded some 200 children and had taken at least 30 of them to the auction block. And one of the 30 kids was her son, Johnny Gosh. According to the FBI, Meyer asked for $11,000 from the Goshes for more information and ransom money. The Goshes were hopeful and paid it. Once Meyer paid, once Meyer received the money, he then asked for a hundred thousand dollars more, along with the promise of the returning of their son. Meyer was arrested in Buffalo at the Canadian border by FBI FBI agents and was later charged with fraud by wire. The letter Meyer wrote had stated that Gosh's son was sold to a man whom Meyer identified as a high-level drug dealer resident within Mexico City. Um, despite the accusation of fraud, Noreen Gosh reportedly took Meyer at his word and later criticized the FBI, stating that the arrest warrant against Meyer destroyed her and her husband John's credibility with anyone who would take the couple's offer to pay ransom for their boy. When, the arrest, when they arrested Meyer, he was only 19 years old. And although motorcycle gangs are notorious for their tough acts and crime, uh, it would have made him only 13 years old when this crime took place. So I don't think the gang would have made uh, the mistake of putting a 13-year-old in charge of guarding children. Sean, I Through got a question year. for you. Yeah. What would happen 
I've just, I, this is a what if scenario. What if someone sent you a ransom note asking for a hundred thousand dollars? What would you do? Well, they'd have to ask, like, have some sort of proof aside from that. I'm sure I'd probably contact the police or the FBI to get them involved. And if I could pay them the hundred thousand dollars to get my kid back, I probably would. But yeah, I I think I'd hit up the Hell's Angels and have them uh, come help me out, dude. We're gonna hunt this motherfucker <laughs> down. Right. <laughs> yeah, I can't. I can't even imagine just how these parents like, just how, like. It's like you want to do it, but it's such a large sum of money. You know, back in the day, a hundred thousand dollars—that's probably equivalent to like a couple million today. It's like, what? What do you yeah. do? You go to the bank and say, "Hey, I need to take out a loan for a million dollars," and they're just like, "Uh, actually, inflation rates are extremely high." So, uh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely, man. No, it'd be daunting and i'm sure there's no worse feeling in the world than losing your kid you know what i mean as a parent so yeah yeah but um yeah uh throughout the years uh people kept coming out of the woodwork claiming to know that like what happened to their son um in the early 90s an inmate from nebraska prison claimed to have info on johnny's disappearance in fact he stated that he was the man who helped kidnap john johnny and his name was paul benassi uh, he was serving time for an alleged, alleged sexual assault on a minor, but he claims he was part of a giant sex trafficking ring that had ad, had abducted him and later forced him to help kidnap Johnny. At an interview with the Des Moines County Register, he said the boys had was, I'm sorry, at an interview at the Des Moines County Register, he said the boy was held captive for several days in the Sioux City, Iowa almost three hours away from his home. Uh, the next time he saw Johnny was four years later at another trafficking house in, Cal in Colorado. The Goshes were skeptical. Paul wasn't the first person to try and cash in on their son, and he definitely wouldn't be the last, so they decided to test his credibility. Police had a rough composite sketch done of the man witnesses said talked to Johnny in 1982 and lined it up with dozens of other pictures. To everyone's surprise, he picked the right one and said that that was the man who ordered him to kidnap Johnny and that night, or Johnny the night before. Uh, he also told her uh, things that he could only know if he really did meet her son. He mentioned a birthmark on his chest and a scar on his leg, a distinctive horseshoe-shaped scar on his tongue. And Paul even described the way that Johnny would stutter when he was upset. Noreen was convinced that the cops weren't what they say, uh, that there was no way that Paul could have been there that morning in 1982 because, according to his siblings, he was in Nebraska the morning Johnny went missing. Back in the 80s, uh, child sex trafficking rings were taboo, and such a conspiracy theory for that time for everyone, everyone just kind of shrugged it off as a uh, false info, you know? Uh, but... As we know, this stuff happens all the time. In Johnny's case, there were plenty of strange sightings. In so, March of 19... Oh, yeah, go ahead, man. So, so, real, so real fast, if you commit a very, very serious crime, like murder, yada, 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 like this guy, you said he was in jail for uh, uh, sexual Sexually. assault. Uh-huh. But, like, I have more sympathy for, for people to, you know, change and become better if they're going to, you know... This guy doesn't have to say anything, but to speak up and try to give these people some some information to help them out, like that's that's freaking awesome. Yeah, 
Like, like it sucks that he's in there for that. And like, yeah, you know, he's good to be in there. But like, I honestly think that guy should get his, you know, I like, he's trying to do good. He's trying to speak up and try to get these guys caught. I, I'm not trying to say I agree with criminals in any way, shape or form, but I, there, there is some, there is some respect to the, to this guy's words, trying to, trying to help him find their kid. Right. Um, in, in March of 1983, a woman in Oklahoma saw two men chasing a boy. Uh, he ran up to her and cried out, please help me. My name is John David Gosh. And she immediately, immediately reported it to the police. Uh, they, but the police kind of blew it, brushed it aside and told her it was a family situation. Uh, but months later, she was watching the news on TV and saw the segment about the missing paper boy. And she called a hotline. And reported that the boy she had seen in Oklahoma was definitely uh, him. Oh my gosh, dude! What the fuck, police? Yeah, you yeah. guys are like in the '80s. Come on, like this is disgusting. <laughs> this kid getting back to his family. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, man. A, a, a PI working for the uh, Gosh's team up with the FBI. Uh, went down there and actually confirmed that it was real, that it really was him. So apparently the PIs in this uh, story do a hell of a lot more than uh, the police do, and some of the FBI also. But. It, it, it's like it gives the family hope, but then again, it just it's also just like kind of a bitch slap to the face. It's like the police didn't catch him here, he can't catch him there. So like I wouldn't have any faith in the police. We, I'd be going fucking Batman status and – Figuring the shit Bro. out myself, dude. Just tell my wife, oh, yeah. like, hey, like, I'm I'm not coming back until I have him. Like, yep, exactly. Gosh, <laughs> yeah, dude. Johnny, gosh, gosh. Oh wow, I just made that connection. <laughs> 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 oh man. All right. Then in uh, 1985, a woman came forward with a dollar bill that she had received as part of her change while uh, shopping at a grocery store in Sioux City. Uh, next to the picture of George Washington, it was written, I'm alive, Johnny Gosh. And uh, three experts for handwriting analysis uh, came back and said that it really was his handwriting. Uh, so once again, they went on TV and begged for their son's return. Uh, the case went cold for quite a while after this uh, until the case broke when they found out when they found a body in northern Mexico. Uh, the body was identified as G Johnny Gosh, but this was not the same Johnny Gosh. According to Noreen Gosh, one morning in uh, 1997, she was awakened around 2.30 in the morning uh, by a knock at her apartment door. Waiting outside was Johnny Gosh, now 27 years old, accompanied by an, accompanied by an unidentified man. Uh Gosh said she immediately recognized her son, who opened his shirt to reveal a birthmark on his chest. She says, uh, we talked for about an hour and a half, or, and uh, he was with another man, but I have no idea who the other person was. Johnny would look over at the other person for approval to speak, and uh, Noreen says he didn't say where he was living or where he was going, but in, 2000, in a 2005 interview... Gosh said that the night that he came here, he was wearing jeans and a shirt and had a, a coat on because it was March. Uh, it was cold and his hair was long. Uh, it was shoulder length and it was straight and dyed black. 
After the visit, she had the FBI create a picture. Uh, she says, looked like Johnny. Noreen had kept all of this a secret until 1999 because uh, she was afraid that Johnny could get hurt if she told anyone, even her husband. But she finally told all of this in a civil suit brought on by Paul Benassi, the same guy that was uh, in jail earlier. Uh, it says, yeah, that... Uh, Sorry. <laughs> it's against Johnny. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, this civil suit was against a uh, Lawrence King manager of Omaha, uh, based Franklin Credit Union. Uh, Paul claimed that Lawrence made him and dozens of other boys uh, be forced into a child pedophile ring. Uh, the case became known as the Franklin Credit Union scandal, and it didn't stop with Paul. Ultimately, Lawrence went to prison for embezzlement, and the human trafficking allegations were written off as baseless. So, poor Noreen never stopped believing that her son had been that her son had been abducted by some kind of child trafficking organization. In 2000, she self-published a book called "Why Johnny Can't Come Home," and although their investigations never led them to their son, uh, they did get several pieces of legislation passed uh, regarding the missing children. In 1984, Iowa passed a Johnny Gosh bill stating that law enforcement must immediately investigate any, missi any missing children cases where foul play could be involved. A fucking man. Jesus right? Christ. The fact that that even needs to be signed into law is an absolute joke. Absolutely. Kids, kids can go anywhere. Like... Uh, Kids can get kid like like adult. It's a little bit different. Like like I'm not trying to say that a child is is more important than an adult, but like to say that just that just blows my mind, dude. Completely blows my mind that that even had to be signed in. If a kid goes missing, you go looking for that flipping kid. For sure. If an adult it goes missing, yeah, they're an adult. They can make their own choices. They're not a child. Like. That 72-hour bullshit, you know, you can get raped and killed, and oh, 72 hours later, all, all you're going to find is a body. Like, that is yep. a joke. Complete L for the freaking police back in the 70s and 80s. You guys are just trash. Like, holy, <laughs> holy fuck. Think about it. Think about it. If this kid went missing and the yeah. police actually started looking for him, you know, they have an accurate description. Maybe somebody sees the vehicle before it decides to leave town and go to another town and kidnap someone else. Maybe they get this information out. Like, it increases the possibilities of maybe catching these these sons of bitches. But, you Absolutely. know, the 72-hour window completely is just giving them a clean slate to go and do it again. And you know, it's, <laughs> it's so crazy, man. Like, I, I try to explain it to my kids, too. But, like, the 80s were not like it is today. Like, the... Uh, the sex trafficking today and the child abduction rate today is like 10 times higher than it was back in the eighties, dude. Like we used to run the streets until the, you know, until the lights came on back when I was a kid. And now it's like, I'm so scared to let my kids go out after dark. It's not even funny, dude. You know? So I actually watched a TikTok video. I don't know how accurate it is. I'm probably going to look up the information and share it on another episode of, uh, of the podcast but like statistically it's like every 20 minutes someone gets uh, a raped in america it's like every 15 minutes there's a violent crime that happens every every 10 you know it, it's literally it's not even minutes it's like every every 30 seconds every 10 seconds there's something that crazy that happens 
And, and like I was kind of the same way too. I understand, uh, you know, we had two different eras here. Like I'm a '96 baby, but I, I live down the middle of nowhere. But still, even living out in the middle of nowhere, if someone kidnapped me, you know, the, how are they going to find you? I, you know what I mean? Like it's just right. Yeah, really is not a safe world out there. And you know, there's all these people that always say like the good old days, and we lived in a, ha- a town where we didn't even have to lock our doors. And uh, all you have to be is that one unfortunate person that didn't lock your door or that one person that decided that one time you weren't going to look after your kid and it can happen to anybody. The chances are pretty low, but it's still possible. Yeah, absolutely, man. Yeah, she uh, so she also testified before Congress about organized pedophiles and sex trafficking rings that she aimed mainly at an organization called NAMBLA. This is going to gross you out, but it's uh, North American Man-Boy Love Association is what it stands for. Uh, Blaming them for the string of missing children over the years, uh, she helped establish the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. If you're a pedophile, I hope you choke on a chicken bone while you're eating your lunch today. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, 24 years after her son uh, disappeared, something strange happened on September 1st. Uh, 2006, Noreen opened her door to find a stack of photos on her stoop. Uh, She said the black and white pictures were of 12-year-old Johnny wearing the same sweatpants he was last seen in, and another photo showed him with other boys. Um, And this photo is kind of disturbing because all the boys... Are you fucking kidding me? Now they're, like, mocking them? Yeah. All the other boys are bound and gagged and, like, laid out on a bed, basically. Like, um... What's that where your feet and hands are tied together behind your back? What's that called? Uh, Cowboys, you do it all the time. The hog tie, whatever. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yes, that. They were all tied like that, basically. And it seems like it would have been a solid lead or maybe uh, some more hope. But uh, just weeks before or just weeks after, the Des Moines, Iowa police uh, got an anonymous letter about the photos. The sender said that someone was playing a trick on Noreen and the boy in the photo was not her son. They were just kids from Florida playing an escape game. Yeah, bull fucking shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the police contacted uh, an investigator in Florida who claimed he had investigated the photo and he corroborate, corroborated the uh, story. And they looked into the picture and he claims it was taken long before Johnny's disappearance and didn't find any foul play. But when the Des Moines... When Des Moines asked for proof that it was from decades late before Johnny, uh, he couldn't come through with any proof for it. So, in 2014, a documentary called Who Took Johnny, uh, police got their hands on the photo and could only identify some of the boys in the photo. Noreen swears that the unidentified boy in the photo is of that of her son Johnny. On the 35th anniversary of his disappearance in 2017, Johnny's red wagon was displayed at the Iowa State Fair because Johnny's father's last memory of his son was visiting the fair with the year he went missing. Uh, Johnny had seen a poster and begged his dad to go, and John and and Noreen's marriage didn't last long after the kidnapping either. They divorced in 1993, a few years before Johnny visited his mother at her apartment. John never believed uh, Noreen that his son came to visit her. He always thought it was another scam artist uh, coming to visit. And as for today, Johnny Gosh is still missing. 
His case is one of the coldest and strangest cases in American history. And uh, this is probably a great place for a commercial break. Did you enjoy the Clap by Fire intro? Do you want to play some of the best apps and mics out there but are broke as a joke just like me? Check out MidnightAudioImpulses.com where you can purchase impulse response in digital speakers. This allows you to still shred that expensive amp for a fraction of the price. Plug in your guitar to your computer and bam, you sound just like your favorite bands. Instead of forking out cash for expensive cabinets, it's a plug and play. Clap by Fire Podcast has an exclusive offer for you at checkout. If you use code CLAPPED in all caps, you can get 25% off your purchase. Again, at checkout, use code CLAPPED in all caps for 25% off your purchases. Again, go check out MidnightAudioImpulses.com. Do you love telling stories and want your voice to be heard? Check out Anchor.com. Anchor is a free program with built-in features that allows you to record and edit on the go. This allows you to get your content out there fast and easy and stress-free. Did I forget to mention it's 100% for free? Anchor's website being super user-friendly allows you to create an account in less than five minutes. Start creating today 100% for free. Check out anchor.com. So, Sean, I actually just looked up some pictures of Johnny Gosh. And... uh, I'm going to be honest, I do not think that this kid looks like every other kid in the freaking 80s. Like, obviously, picture quality uh, is definitely definitely there. Uh, not there. Sorry. Right. <laughs> but uh, I don't I don't know. He, 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 I don't think he looks like every kid. You know what I mean? Yeah. He, I mean, he's rocking the bull-style haircut, you know, and uh, kind of just a, just a lanky kid, you know. Kind of looks like uh, he's got Adidas and Nikes on the day he was kidding or or, uh, with his paper bag, dude. Yeah, (laughs) I I I don't know, I don't know. Looking at these pictures, kind of kind of just like what? How how do you like think that? How how are you getting these pictures messed up? How are you saying that's not your kid? Like he he looks like a pretty like pretty like a kid that if you saw him in a picture, you'd be able to tell it's him. I don't know. Not my not my era. I've seen a lot of old pictures. My grandma has scrapbooked like crazy. And uh, even with all those pictures, you could still look at them and say, oh, yeah, that's Uncle John, that's Jeff, that's Steven, you know. Right, for sure. Well, what I just discussed is the typical news side of the story. But I feel like we wouldn't be giving the whole story uh, without going into Noreen's side of this thing. There will be some repeat information. But uh, her side is probably some of the craziest and darkest shit I've ever read. So, Noreen's side of this is based off of her book, by the way. Um, a lot of stuff came from that, and uh, it's it's a wild ride. So, here we go. Uh, the Friday night before Johnny was kidnapped, the Gosh family atten- had attended a high school football game where Noreen's oldest boy was playing. Johnny asked if he could go down to the concession stand and get some snacks. Johnny climbed down the bleachers, went over, bought his snacks, and stood there watching his older brother play. Next thing Noreen knew, Johnny wasn't standing there where he used to be watching his brother. So John, who's Johnny's father, went down to find him and found him underneath the bleachers. John found him speaking with a West West Des Moines police officer. John yelled for Johnny to come back up and be with his family, so he did. But after the game was over... 
uh, as his family was leaving the stadium, this cop was standing by the railing as people were passing by. Uh, Johnny pointed him out to his mother and said, that's the man I was speaking to underneath the bleachers, and I want to be a police officer when I grow up. The family went home, and the next day was a regular Saturday. Uh, Noreen's oldest daughter had come home from college with her fiancé, and Noreen cooked them all dinner. After dinner, uh, Noreen was cleaning up, and Johnny told her how he needed to go to bed because he had to get up early in the morning to do our paper route. He had plans for uh, later that afternoon to go to the lake with the family in their boat and bring along a friend. He uh, then looked at his dad and asked his dad if he could do the route alone tomorrow, which he had never done before. His father agreed and said, I guess that would be all right, but Noreen told him no immediately because he was much younger than his brother, than his older brother when he had this route. Um, it was just a small route, though. It had only 28 papers to deliver and was within a two-block radius of their home. After Noreen had... Uh, complained, John changed his mind and said, wake me up in the morning and I'll go with you. Johnny said goodnight and went upstairs to, to bed and Noreen continued cleaning and turned around to see Johnny there again. He ran over to his mom and gave her a big hug and said, mom, I really love you and you're the best. Then he ran back up the stairs and went to bed and that's the last time she ever saw him. Dude, th oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, right? It almost seems like he's saying goodbye. Yeah. It's super weird. Like, uh, there's a lot of uh, weird things that I'll read to you here in a second that just kind of all interplay, and you're like, this is the craziest jigsaw I've ever seen. But uh, anyways, later around 1.30 in the morning, uh, they received a phone call. Apparently, these phone calls would always come in on either Saturday night or Sunday morning, and they had been going on for weeks. But... Uh, because the phone was on John's side of the bedroom, he would always answer it and would tell them it's the wrong number. But that morning, when she heard him answer the phone, or when she heard him answer the phone, she heard him say, "Yeah, okay, all right," and then he hung up the phone, and he told Noreen this time that it was a wrong number. The next morning, they uh, awakened to to uh, the neighbors calling them about how they didn't receive any other papers yet. So John went up to go help and Noreen, and told Noreen to get up and get going on breakfast so that they can get an early start for the lake. About 20 minutes later, the door busts open and it's John who is as white as a ghost and tells Noreen to call the police. Johnny is missing. Noreen calls the police and John goes back out to finish the route so the neighbors would stop calling. Uh, in the meantime, Noreen is waiting for the police, who are 10 blocks away, to come. Uh, it only takes 45 minutes, it takes them 45 minutes to get there, and so she calls the paper route manager in the meantime, and gets the names of all the kids who work with Johnny. By the time the cops came, Noreen had already called and spoke with all the boys who were there at that morning, and they all said the same thing. So, so, so real fast, you, in your uh, previous story, you said that when they called, the police didn't show up for another 45 minutes, and yet they were that close? Yeah, exactly. Please, yeah, what the fuck are you guys doing? Put your donuts down, get in your cars, and <laughs> freaking drive down the road. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah. You're really going to have some thoughts by the end of this, guy. I gotta Dude, my, my, I, like, I have so many questions right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So... Um, all the kids said the same thing when she asked them. 
They said that a man came by in an old blue car and rolled down the window and was talking with the kids, asking them for directions. Johnny was freaked out and told one of the other kids he was going home. So he started back home with his wagon and his dog. And this man starts his car. But before tearing out uh, of there, he turns on and off his dome light three times and then speeds away. A 16-year-old boy noticed that as the car took off, another man came out from between two houses and followed Johnny down the street. The witnesses said uh, he saw Johnny take a left at the end of the street and heard his dog growling, but after that, he couldn't see Johnny anymore. Uh, The next thing he heard was the slamming of a car door, the screeching of tires, and then saw that same old blue car pass again, run the stop sign, turn north, and that would lead them to the interstate. Noreen had explained all this to the police, and the police just acted like they didn't hear a thing, she said. And uh, they proceeded to ask her, has your son ever run away before? Noreen gave the police a piece of paper with all the names of the witnesses on it, and and, uh, they left. Yeah, I think there's somebody on the inside... This sounds yeah. this this almost sounds like like either a corrupt police station or like a neighbor or someone is is working. It is it is I, I the pictures that showed up later, I, I think there's someone on the inside. <laughs> yeah. Uh knowing the cops weren't going to do anything, uh Noreen called her local neighbors and friends to uh form search parties and start looking at abandoned locations and warehouses and parks. Anywhere something foul could happen. Uh, the police came by again, and after uh, the police came by again only after 2 p.m. and brought a detective with him. Uh, he would ask a lot of questions, and then after every question, would respond with, "If what you're saying is true." So Noreen even tried to give them pictures of Johnny, but he didn't want them. So what the fuck? Soon- I know, right? <laughs> Soon news reporters began showing up at the door, so she gave them the pictures of Johnny instead. The next day, one of the search parties that were combing the area came back to Noreen's house, and they were mad as hell, and began saying, I thought you people wanted help. Noreen replied, well, we do, and he said, well, we were out searching the state park, and a police car shows up, and out of it comes Chief Orville Cooney, who uh, was drunk as a skunk and stood on top of his on top of a picnic table with a megaphone and yelled at all of us saying all you people go home this kid is nothing but a damn runaway oh Noreen, dude dude no yeah i'd go deck that guy in the face holy <laughs> hell your kid is missing your child is missing you're you're, you're a defensive parent in panic mode and literally the people that your tax dollars are going to that are supposed to help serve and protect are calling you a liar and like trying to tell you that you're crazy. My yep. kid's here. You gave birth to him. You wiped his butt. You fed him every day. You nursed him to life. You're helping him to to contribute to society to go run a paper route, and he just just disappears. And no one, no 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 one in the police gives a two flying fa. Like this police station needs to get sued, dude. I'd sue the shit out of him. <laughs> yeah. Holy hell. Uh, just wait, buddy. <laughs> so, Noreen now realizing that the police are n- 
no help. They, she calls the FBI, who tells her that they wouldn't that they would be over in a couple of days if the police don't find anything. Um, so three days later, they send over two special agents, uh, Ed Mall and David Oxler, who sat down with Noreen to tell her that they would not be entering the case because the police chief said says he doesn't need their help. Um, other volunteers came to try to aid Noreen and her family with searches. Uh, they even offered a, a free canine unit search, and the police chief denied all of them. By day five, after the kidnapping, Noreen was driving her car and noticed that a police car was following her. So she put pulled into a parking lot, and the cop did too. He approached the car and said, Ma'am, I just want you to know that I'm the sheriff of Dallas County, which is the county adjacent to theirs. And he said, right after your boy was kidnapped, we sent a whole group of men to the police department to help, and as did other county sheriffs in the area. And your police chief told all of our men to go home that he didn't need any help. So did they upset? Did they upset the police officer? Was this was this like uh, their kid was like better at baseball than his kid or something? Or (laughs) (laughs) you you know what I mean? Like it feels real personal, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it seems uh, seems like the cop. he might be guilty, and he he might be uh, might be a little fen- uh, offended about something. Yeah, for sure. So a week goes by, and they finally go to uh, the national news, and all these tips are starting to come in. In uh, and Noreen would take them all to the police department every day and ask what happened to the ones from the day before, and the police would say we didn't think that that was that this one was anything or that we should follow up on this one. Uh, everything about this case screams organized kidnapping. You know what I mean? And oh, for sure. Yeah. Even after all the evidence and all the people coming forward, even the 44 year old lawyer who saw it all and gave the license to police chiefs, uh, they still entered Johnny in the system as a runaway. And it would take Noreen four months to get her son's status to change in the computer. Now, the thing about that is, like, when you're entered as a runaway in the cops system, they don't go searching for you. It's not one of those, like, okay, they're in immediate danger, so we need to go find them now sort of situations. It's a, uh, if you happen upon this person, you know, bring them in. So, so, I, I, so, so, so real fast, a thought that also might come, that comes to mind real fast uh, maybe, just maybe, maybe these kidnappers paid the police to, or paid the sheriff, dude, was like, hey, we're going to come in, snap some kids, and, uh, by the way, here's, uh, here's, like, $50,000, uh, keep your mouth shut, you know? <laughs> oh, it's, it's darker than that, bro. Yeah, it, it, I just, so. there's, there's someone, <laughs> someone is on the inside here, there's, there's no doubt about it, how... How these these towns are targeted, and it seems like the police stations working like against them. There, there, there. I think there's someone on the inside, and I think someone got paid to keep their mouth shut. Yes, sir. <clears throat> so uh, two weeks later, in the Des Moines Register, there was an article saying that two young girls, ages 13 and 14, had been kidnapped off the streets of Des Moines and uh, taken to Omaha, Nebraska, two hours away, and put into a prostitution ring. The two men that kidnapped them had been caught. Uh, they were Latino. Norena, Noreen took this article to the police and asked if they would contact the police chief in Omaha, Nebraska. 
uh, because if they could kidnap these girls and take them there, maybe they took Johnny there too. Of course, the police chief says no, so she then goes to the FBI office and asks them, and they also told her no. So Noreen calls the local TV and newspaper and radio channels and uh, hosts her first press conference. She stood up and told all of them about the article and the response she got from the police chief and the FBI and asked the cameras why why won't they investigate. Uh, this is when they just had a kidnapping. So the police chief was pissed that she did the press conference and came to her home and began screaming at her to uh, berate her for uh, painting him in a bad light. Three days later, she gets a phone call from an anonymous man. Uh, the man said if she didn't stop making waves, she would be dead, and then he hung up. Uh, years later, it would come to light that there was a child pornography and prostitution ring that was actually going on in Nebraska. Uh, by calling out these people in Nebraska, she was basically pointing a spotlight at what would later be known as the Franklin Credit Union scandal, but that didn't break until 1988. Then in northern Iowa, there was a little boy, 11 years old, found dead in a refrigerator, which was in a barn. Uh, police claimed it was a suicide and shut down the case. Oh yes. my gosh. Yeah, a, I know, kid, right? a kid in a refrigerator is a suicide. Yeah, eleven years old, right? So, oh, gee, oh my gosh, dude! Somebody needs to get bitch slapped right now, and it, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, that that so, sounds like a killer, Hillary Clinton. How does a guy get tied to a tree and then shot in the head, and that's deemed as a suicide? Like, right? Yeah, how dumb can people get? Like, let's use some common <laughs> sense here. You're not gonna sit in a fridge. And uh, slowly freeze to death and die. Come on, people. Nah, it is nothing like that. It was super sad. So yeah, I'm, not, tr I'm not trying to get like angry or anything. I'm just, I'm just. Oh no, like, you I, should. I'm just saying, like, what, like, what the fuck? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> you should, man. I mean, like, reading some of this really pissed me off too, because I was like, how can, how can these people just continually get away with it and pretend like, ah, oh, you guys are just idiots? You know what I mean? And still have all this evidence in front of them gosh so anyways yes it was true that they uh, found this little boy dead in a refrigerator but the barn had a dirt floor and in front of the fridge they say you could tell that someone had br brushed away the footprints and the inside of uh, the fridge had bloody claw marks from where the boy had tried to get out the parents believe that this was another kidnapping attempt that went bad and that they had to get rid of the body somehow. So, Noreen began getting national attention and was put on TV shows like Good Morning America and other shows featuring missing kids. And uh, six weeks later, the police call Noreen and John to the department and tell them to, look, uh, we're going to have to put all of this back on, on the back burner and uh, that they... They don't have the budget big enough to continue looking for uh, her son. And so the police was not going to do anything anymore, and the FBI wouldn't enter the case. So Noreen hires a couple of private investigators to help. And to help pay for the private investigators, they sold chocolate candy bars for a, a dollar apiece with uh, Johnny's picture printed on them. And they sold them to sports teams and ended up selling 450,000 candy bars. 
at a dollar a piece. <laughs> yeah, and they, so. they deserve that. Thank you for the community coming together to try to, you know, save and protect children. And uh, screw you. Uh, I can't remember which depl- which uh, Iowa Police Department, yeah. Craig. Uh, screw you guys. Screw you, police chief. <laughs> God. Right? The, the, that guy's dead, right? Is the police chief uh, dead? Honestly, I don't know. Don't dude, know where he's at right if now. If he is, I hope a dog takes a big old shit on his grave, dude. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. So, uh, anyways, they sold these uh, candy bars at a dollar a piece and got a 50 cent profit. So that's how she was able to uh, afford the private investigators and, and whatnot. Uh, Nuri found out that if you make a request to your local senators <laughs> for the FBI to become involved, your senators will email the national FBI in Washington, and then they will email your local FBI department, and they have to become involved then. Uh, then the local branch has to email the main branch, and the main branch emails your senators, and then it goes back to you. So it's kind of like this triangle thing where you contact your senator, your senator contacts the main branch, the main branch contacts your local branch, and then... so. Nobody's really talking to you until your senator gets back to you. You know what I mean? From what they said. So this is how Noreen began delegating leads with the FBI. The five detectives that they had hired uh, started interviews with people in the area who might who might have been up in the morning, uh, who might have seen or heard anything. And one man a few blocks away saw a van parked against the flow of traffic on the street with his motor running. He said he had gone to the kitchen to make a pot of coffee, heard the van running, looked out, and thought it was odd that this van was parked out there. Then he saw a blue car pull up, and they pulled out something wrapped in a blanket and transferred it from the car to the van, and then both vehicles took off. That was Johnny. Of course, the man had no idea that he had just witnessed a kidnapping. Two years later, 1984, the FBI is finally forced to get involved and starts taking interviews. Also in 1984, Noreen writes legislature and uh, creates the Johnny Gosh Bill. Uh, It forces the police department to open an investigation for missing children immediately. Just prior to her passing this bill, uh, Noreen received another phone call from a man who claimed to be an informant and told her that there was going to be another kidnapping in the Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, that it would be the second weekend in August in 1984, that it would be another paper boy, and be on the south side of the Des Moines. Of Des Moines. Uh, Noreen had recorded this and took the tape to the Des Moines uh, Police Department on the south side. And they didn't want to hear it. Oh my um, gosh! Are you fucking right. kidding me? <laughs> right, dude. <laughs> they didn't. They didn't want anything to do with it. So then she went to the uh, TV stations and played it for them, to the news director, saying, "Please, you, you at least need to know about this, you know." And uh, she then went to uh, one of the reporters who reported on all of Johnny's cases and played it for him. His name was Frank Santiago. Well, August came and the news crews for, or, and a news crew from 2020 was in town doing Johnny's story when Noreen spoke to the producer and told her about the phone call she received and that there was going to be another kidnapping. Uh, she made the uh, producer 
made arrangements to stay in Des Moines one more night. The following morning, Noreen gets a phone call early in the morning from an ABC affiliate. Uh, he informed Noreen that there had been another kidnapping, and it was another paperboy in South Des Moines. And they were, and that they're Gosh, bringing in dude. 22 FBI agents from the Quantico, from Quantico to handle the case, which they didn't do any of that for Johnny. So, quick question. So, yeah. What is it called when a police officer, like in today, if a doctor messes up, it's considered like medical malpractice. Uh, what what is it called when your police station, um, just fucks up big time? Is there is I mean, there a word for that or just uh other than just straight negligence I have no idea But man. that's not like, that's not even negligence like like the fact yeah. that they won't even look at this evidence the fact that they won't even listen like they they could have prevented a, a, another kidnapping and just straight up didn't Oh hey Creeper yeah. called me uh kidnap a kid's going to get kidnapped and uh you know, kid gets kidnapped, and then uh, you know the police station doesn't call you like, "Oh, we should we should have listened." You know, <laughs> oh, this, uh, this uh, banana Kush back here is pretty pretty fucking good. You should try some. <laughs> <laughs> so, during the rest of this, man, I want you to keep in mind like all this weird anonymous shit going on in the background, all these like random phone calls, because I think I know exactly who it is, even though they have never come forward. So, Noreen immediately calls the producer of 2020 who was staying in the Marriott Hotel and let her know that it just happened. Uh, she called the New York office and got another film, film crew to uh, back and went straight into the police department and put the mic right in the chief's face and asked, Are you going to do a canine search? They didn't do that for Johnny Gosh. Are you going to do a plane or a helicopter search? They didn't do that for Johnny Gosh. Are you going to bring in the FBI? They wouldn't do that for Johnny Gosh. And unfortunately, they never found the boy that was kidnapped, but at least his case had been investigated. Um, and the irony is that these two cases are almost identical. He was kidnapped at the same time in the morning. He was also a paper boy. and was about the same age. The next seven years, uh, the trail went cold. And so Noreen decided to put herself to do some good. Uh, she start, started seminars for people to recognize pedophiles and kidnappers and things to watch out for. She also pushed for Johnny Gosh's bill to be in every state. Uh, one afternoon in 1986, Noreen receives a phone call from the police saying that they had just received a call from a man who identified himself as a member of one of the mafia families. And that there was a contract put out on you. And... Uh, that they would try to kill her and lure her out of town because she is causing too many waves for these people. And uh, they're going to try to get rid of her. So the police contacted the FBI about this, and the next morning, Noreen gets another phone call. It was a man she didn't know saying that she needed to go to the airport that afternoon, that there would be a ticket waiting for her, and she was to take the shuttle that would take her to Kansas City. Um, there she would board an Eastern airliner that would take her into Oklahoma. And when she landed there, she would rent a car and go check in at a certain hotel under her name and wait there. And then the man hung up. Uh, she then called the police and informed her and they informed her that they would be at her house in 30 minutes. Uh, 
when they showed up, the FBI was with them, and they all sat and argued at the dinner table. The uh, FBI wanted to send Noreen on this trip, but the new police chief, so there's a new guy that got voted in. It's not the same old dirty chief that was then. Thank fucking God. Uh, Holy balls, dude. Right? (laughs) New police chief informed them uh, about the phone call and uh, the hit put out on Noreen. The FBI left to report back to Washington to see uh, what to do, and the local police gave Noreen a cell phone to use and told her not to leave her home. A few hours later, they all came back, and the FBI said if they were, were to send an FBI agent with her to pose as her husband, would she be considered? Would she consider going? Um, the police chief then yelled at the FBI, saying that she will never get back here. And they will either take her out in Kansas City because she will have to cross the tarmac or it will happen in Oklahoma. Uh, it will have to be a policewoman or someone that we can make look like her. So Noreen stayed home and made it look like she wasn't there. They sent a policewoman and uh, she went to the hotel just like they had told her to do. A man called her and wanted him to meet her in a coffee shop. And then they were going to take a drive out to a remote area, and that's where all this evidence was supposed to be. They got the guy, and he went to the pen for 10 years. It was an actual contract, and this was in 1988. So this dude was waiting for him in the coffee shop, and uh, the police were obviously notified by the phone call, and, and they just went in there and busted him up. So he never got to take him on the drive or anything. Otherwise, she'd probably be dead. And, of course, this guy, in a, he's not a snitch. He didn't say anything, right? Right, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that is also when uh, 80 kids came forward in Omaha, Nebraska, to tell the police uh, about that, that, they had, that they had all been abducted into the prostitution ring and used. Um, there was one boy who uh, they charged with perjury because he named names. And one of the names he named was the police chief. Yeah, the dirty one that we just talked about uh, while they were talking to him in prison. Or while they were taking... Or I'm so sorry. While they were taking him to prison, he told police that he was in the car uh, the morning they kidnapped Johnny. And his name was Paul Benessi. Paul yeah. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. Did that guy get charged, held accountable? So Paul actually served his time, and when he got out, he will turn around and sue the people who put him in jail. Are you all – okay, there's not justice in this world, people. If you right. honestly think life is fair, it is not fair. Holy <laughs> balls. Dude, I'm going to be honest. Out of all these episodes that we've done, I think this one has pissed me off the most. My blood is boiling right now. Yeah. <laughs> Just wait. I haven't even hit the oh shit moment yet. So, <laughs> How many years did this guy get real fast? Uh, goodness. I don't think it was that long. I think it was like six or 11 years, something like that. But, you know, oh it was my. For, yeah, it was, it was a while. But uh, anyways... Paul described uh, how they came to Des Moines uh, a few months before Johnny was kidnapped and how they would take photos of him while he was walking home from school. Uh, a neighbor of Noreen's claims that she saw a man taking pictures of Johnny on his way home but never thought too much about it. Um, 
They saw the car. It had California plates on it, and a man was leaning out of the car with a long telephoto lens, taking pics of Johnny while he walked. Um, Paul Benassi, from his jail cell, described the house that Johnny was standing in front of while Johnny was photographed. Paul knew everything about how it happened and who was involved, where the van was parked, and supposedly, Paul at this time was only 18. So, when Paul was asked why did they pick Johnny over the other kids, Paul told them because they had pictures of the pedophiles, or they had pictures, and the pedophiles liked, the, liked his picture the best, and that became the kid that they were, going, that they were told to grab next. Oh my gosh, dude. So these guys would go around the neighborhood taking photos of kids, and then they bring the photos to pedophiles, and um, the pedophiles get their hand pick of whatever they want, and uh, they put a price on the kid, and then they go snatch them up. How so. how low how much of a low life piece of scumbag fucking piece of shit do you have to be to work for these fucking people? For real, though. Like, like yeah. uh, if I there's an afterlife, it, dude, <laughs> dude I, I, I sure hope that uh, there's some severe punishment. Um, and I, I, I just, dude, ju- I just, just, there's no such thing as justice, dude. I'm, I'm telling you, there's justice for nothing. Yeah. Holy balls, dude. And if you're one of those people that you say, you know, that, that, uh, that jail, you know, like, do you have a better solution? Have you do you do you help vote in people that want to help change? Because uh, I I just I'm baffled, completely baffled by by the shit that I'm hearing today, dude. Holy balls, am I pissed off right now? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> so um, he told them who bought Johnny, how much they were paid for getting him, and who molested him. Oddly enough, after freely giving up all this information, you would think that the police would jump all over this case now and re-interview him and and try to get ahead of it, right? But they didn't. They didn't want anything to do with it again. So, Paul was also a kidnapped victim. Um, he was sexually abused, and then he was used to kidnap other kids. Um, most people only warn their kids about, you know, adults. Uh, but what happens when... You have other teenage kids learning your kids to the car. You know what I mean? Dude, so, oh, my, oh my. It sounds like some crazy-ass cult. Like, right. Kind of. <laughs> I God. mean, you trust, you know, you trust somebody your own age or, you know, you think, oh, hey, this kid goes to my school or he's a friend of a friend or whatever. You know what I mean? I should, should go ahead and listen to what he says and you know, go hang out or do what he's telling me to do because there's really no obvious threat of danger. But what they don't realize is that this kid has been hired to do exactly that, you know, just to, to lure them out. And they, and they've instilled the fear in him that they're going to keep abusing him and kill him if he doesn't do it. So they don't leave him like any options. It's even just more, which even is just more fucked up in the head. Right. Yeah. So, so I got, I got a quick story real fast. Sure. No hate on uh, foster kids. Um, I uh, when I was in middle school, this new kid joined in my PE class. I can't even remember his name. Super quiet, always kept his head down, and I just remember I, I always got a weird feeling about this kid. And uh, I remember I went in the locker room, and he got his locker right next to mine. And I always remember I'd like go in there and I'd like change and 
And uh, I don't know. I was just always just a little skeptical. You know, this, like I said, this kid would never look you in the eyes, always had his head down. Uh, Low-key, the kid probably shanked me or something. But I remember one day he, like, he like bumped me, and I was just like, whoa, dude. This kid jumped and put me in a headlock, bro, threw me on the ground. And uh, <clears throat> so I'm in a headlock. You know, I, I have the, the air is escaping my lungs, and I feel like I'm going to fucking die. And the only uh, way I, I, like, lived is I put my elbow right in his shoulder. And I told myself, I was like, calm down, calm down, calm down, calm down. I literally laid in there for, like, 15 minutes before a teacher came in because some kid was like, hey, so that dude's getting choked out in the, the locker room. And then they took damn. that kid, and I never saw him ever again, dude. Wow. But So, yeah, dude, you can't, can't trust anybody, <laughs> dude. And I'm telling you, I thought I was going to die, bro, because, like, if you've ever been choked out, like, I've done, I've done wrestling and stuff. and Yeah. Oh, getting yeah. Getting choked no. out is, like, I don't know how to explain it. You feel your eyes rolling in the back of your head. You feel, you feel life escaping you. And uh, it's crazy, dude. You, you you cannot trust anybody. Like I said, he, <clears throat> I didn't even like, I didn't even like get mad at him or anything. He just like like bumped me one day, and I was like, oh oh, like whoa, you know, like you, you okay, yeah. dude? Like you got got a problem here? Boom, fucking like cougar reflexes threw me in a headlock, threw me on the fucking tile floor, and like like dude, I dude is crazy, dude, Cra- crazy crazy crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that that was middle school. I was probably like fourteen when that happened, dude. <laughs> oh damn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he he was acting out, that's for sure. So, uh, Paul would sit in the backseat of these cars, and the man that followed Johnny, uh, he would push him into the car, and then Paul would chloroform him. And then uh, they transferred his body to a van wrapped in a sheet. Uh, then they would go in different directions and meet up at an abandoned farmhouse in Sioux City, Iowa. When they found the farmhouse that Johnny had been kept in, uh, he had stayed there for almost two weeks. Uh, he was bound and gagged, and they dro- they doped him up all of the time and sexually abused him. The kidnappers were also brand or the kidnapped kids were also branding, and uh, they would take a hot iron, like like you would do a cow, and like either stick him in the arm or the leg. Uh, you know, some other body part didn't really matter, but uh, they were branded out. Uh, they would take picture pictures of all of this, and those pics were then shown again to the pedophiles who might want them or to own a child, and that's where Johnny was sold. Uh, the kidnappers received about $8,500 for uh, kidnapping Johnny alone, and according that this is all according to Paul Benassi when he was on the stand. So... Can you imagine that though? I mean, even that four kids right there, that's eight and a half grand per kid, you know, just at a basis. Like, that's insane, dude. Like, it's disgusting, but. Geez. Yeah, I, I'm totally thinking of the, the movie Taken. I will find you yeah. and I will kill <laughs> <Right>. you. <laughs> Very specific. I, I just don't even know as a parent, like, how do you react? Dude, I would start caring everywhere I fucking went. Right. Like, yeah. how, how do you, like, mentally take that? They're mocking you, and, and uh, you know, obviously, you know, I, I dude, I think the police, the police officer, uh, I think that, de- or the, the, the police chief, uh, I think that dude should have uh, gotten life in jail, and uh, I don't know, dude, if that ever happened to me, I, I think I'd go fucking Batman status, dude, I'd start caring everywhere I went, and I'd... 
<laughs> right? If I found out that people are fucking around with me, like I don't, I don't even know, dude. I don't know, but that's that just pisses I, me off, dude. Anger, anger would feel like I, I don't know. Have you ever been so angry that you had energy you never even knew you even had? Oh yeah, for sure. I just, I just feel like the the fact that everyone's just trying to screw you, and you're looking, you're, all you're trying to do is, is, uh, you know, protect your child. That's all you're trying to do. Try to find your kid. Try yeah. to find your kid, and you have all this shit happen, dude. I would, I would go v- v- <laughs> Batman status, yeah. dude. Holy hell. Oh yeah, yeah, straight Punisher, man. <laughs> oh, oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1993, Noreen divorced John. John had become uh, physically abusive towards Noreen, and after the divorce, John disappeared from everyone and everything and refused to help with the investigation anymore. After Paul Benassi finished his sentence, he turned uh, suit on the people who did this to him, and in court told the judge all about Johnny Gosh's case, and the judge believed he was telling the truth. The judge asked Benassi, Aspenasi, on the morning of the kidnapping, how did they know Johnny was going to be alone on the paper route? You ready to get pissed off, Kai? Dude, I already am pissed. Like, like <laughs> screw this guy, dude. Like I said, I hope every dog in this neighborhood goes and shits on this dude's grave. Like, So, this one will get you worse. Benassi looked at the judge and said, there were prior arrangements that had been made with Mr. Gosh on the phone at about 1.30 in the morning, we called him, and he was told not to go on the route the next morning. So the dad was in on it, man. No. Yeah. Wait, 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 wait. The police officer said the dad? No, no. Benassi, on, on the stand, told the judge that he asked him how did he know, you know, that Johnny was going to be alone the next day. And he told him because we called him at one thirty in the morning and we told him not to go on the route with Johnny. Are so. you fucking kidding me, dude? Oh, my gosh. So did they like check yeah. the bank account to see if he got like they paid him like I, that was never mentioned. So God yeah, damn, dude. But it gets yeah twisted her. So after the trial, Noreen was contacted by an off-duty policeman who told her that the police chief had called a meeting to tell everyone that he did not want them to help her close this case or for it to go any further. Uh, By the way, this is police chief number three. So we're back to another corrupt cop. Uh, Noreen asked why he was telling her this, and he replied, you're up against people who are too powerful, and they're not going to let you be successful. Noreen still believes her son is still alive and that he and a few other boys escaped in 1988 and only survived by living under the radar and off of Indian reservations. Uh, Because there is no law enforcement there um, because they are considered sovereign states, so they can't be sought after by cops. Johnny did go visit Noreen, though, in 1997. She had been on the Lisa Gibbons show, and she was able to give a message to the public and to Johnny uh, if he was watching. She said, I love you, um, no matter what happened, and that she moved and was no longer married to his father, and that she was in the phone book and still in West Des Moines, and that he could contact her at any time. So, three months later... Noreen receives a knock at her door at 2 o'clock in the morning, 
and there stood Johnny out in the hallway. He came inside and visited for about two hours, and he had another boy with him. Johnny confirmed all the things that Paul Benassi had told her. He had seen the Lisa Givens program and believed that his mother would do anything to help him, and he wanted to do something to get these men arrested, and made her promise that excuse me, she wouldn't tell that he had been there to see her. Well, she did um, keep quiet for two years until she was called out on the witness stand for the Benassi case. And the attorney asked her if, since Johnny had been missing, if she had seen him or talked to him in person. She tried to avoid the question, but the judge made her answer, telling her that she would be in contempt if she didn't. After Johnny had uh, left that night, she made an appointment with the county attorney and took in all the info that Johnny had told her and explained that all the info came from an, inf from an informant, not from Johnny. But after all of this information, she had hopes that, that maybe one time again they would reopen the case and start over. But the police refused, and even though it came from the federal court, they still refused and didn't want to help. Uh, she went to find out why, and they told her because someone higher up had told us all to stand down the morning of the kidnapping. So the police were already informed the morning that Johnny went missing that something was going to happen and that everyone was to stand down, which is why, from the beginning, they refused to help on all levels. Dude, I'm getting some, like, Jeffrey Epstein fucking vibes. A, a yeah. pedophile and power makes all these calls can literally uh, control the police like this is disgusting yeah so being frustrated from all of this noreen continued but never giving up on her son one day a man walked into her office and put a business card down on her desk and he said if you ever get tired of the police not working for you give me a call and then he left this man she named bill and uh, Bill turned out to be Mafia. Uh -huh. and, uh, Fuck yeah! yeah. Fuck yeah! <laughs> he, he explained to her there are a lot of things we do not, uh, you know, that one day when she called him, he explained to her there is a lot of things that they do and they're accused of doing in this country, but the one thing that they don't do is kids. And uh, he told her that he had been authorized to help her with anything that he could. So... When she's getting, like, these informations, these, you know, little anonymous calls, anonymous tips that are legit, it's uh, little members of the mafia kicking in and, and helping out. So, Dude, just give holy... you an idea how, how deep this shit goes, like, even the mafia knows what's going on. So, Noreen still doesn't know why her ex did what he did. Uh, the only thing they know is that the man that Paul Benassi sued was named Larry King. No, not the Larry King that we all know, but a black man who ran the Franklin Credit Union on the Omaha, Nebraska. It was a money laundering scheme that laundered money for lots of bad guys, and one of them was NAMBLA, or the North American Man-Boy Love Association. NAMBLA placed hundreds of thousands of dollars through the credit union, and Larry King was in on all of this scandal and it blew up in Nebraska. When Paul Benassi uh, sued him and won, he got a million dollars for damages in 1999. 
but King was imprisoned from 1999 to 2001, and he went straight from his cell in Colorado to a job that was waiting for him in Washington, D.C. He would go ahead and have these rental houses in Washington, in Washington D.C. and throw large parties at this home, and uh, he would have the first party where, you know, it was a normal everybody's invited, decent people are, are there, and it's a respectable party. And then he would have the after party, and the after party would be when all the uh, drugs came out, and then the children came out, and um, yeah, the pedophiles would party. So, uh, that's, yeah, sorry, just lost my place for a second. So, uh, there was a photographer by the name of Rusty Nilsson who was hired by King um, and his job was to get incriminating pictures with any VIPs with a child doing something inappropriate and then they would blackmail them. Rusty Nilsson was also in the courtroom in 1999 testifying a picture of Noreen's ex-husband. Um, he was, it was shown to Rusty, and he was asked, do you know who this man is? Nelson replied he recognized him, but the first time he had seen him was in Larry King's office. King would hang out at a club called The Mark, and it was a place where they would pick out local boys to use for prostitution. So both Benassi and Nelson had, their, had seen her ex at the club multiple times. And when Bonassi first surfaced in 1988, his attorney, John DeCamp, called Noreen's home to tell them that his client had confused Noreen, or that his client had confessed. I'm so sorry. Noreen was not home at the time, at that night, and uh, she was working. And John had answered the phone, uh, but he didn't tell Noreen about it. He then went over to Nebraska and out to the prison with John DeCamp, and he kept the secret for over a year. Then news broke that Benassi would confess to the Johnny Gosh case. So, it wasn't until Who the 1997 fuck is this chick that married Noreen... to like what the fuck? Right. What <laughs> the just... fuck, dude? Oh like what? Yeah. Oh my god, bro. <laughs> <laughs> so, it wasn't until 1997 that Noreen had met to camp for the first time. Uh 2020, the news thing had called and uh, they wanted to do a final cut on Johnny's story so they flew a film crew out and they all went over to John DeCamp's office to uh, meet and talk um, when she walked in John DeCamp uh, stood up and shook Noreen's hand and friendly said oh Noreen it's so good to see you again she said John I've never been here before and I've never met you before and he said oh yes you have uh, you came over here in 1988 with your husband, and we went to the prison to interview Benassi. Uh, she said, no, I didn't. And uh, she says, no, I didn't. I didn't even learn about Benassi until sometime later. John had uh, kept this from her. So John DeCamp invited his office manager into the room and said, hey, Jan, didn't John come out and introduce this woman as his wife? And Jan said, yes, he did did and yes you went to the prison but this isn't the woman that he introduced as a different woman oh my so, dude this, so, this story is fucking my brain i know right <laughs> <laughs> 
so John had taken this other woman and introduced her as his wife to go to the interview with Paul Benassi at the prison. Um, so what else had he done uh, with this woman? Uh, John had hired a woman from Omaha, Nebraska. She was a private investigator and a lookalike for Noreen. Uh, John had this woman as a double for as long as Johnny had been missing, meaning that he was using this woman as his wife uh, in Omaha for ever since Johnny originally went missing and pretending that it was his wife. Dude, what in yeah. the... Is this guy in jail? No, he disappeared. So as soon as like the story broke about uh, the Benassi guy getting out, he split, dude. They divorced, and he like took off, and nobody knows where he's at. I so. hope dog shit on your grave too, you piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> so Paul Benassi, um, the informant guy, he is uh, married now, and he has two kids of his own. But when all the kidnapping was going down, he had to create a new mindset to survive. And he was deemed with a multi-personality disorder. These uh, other personalities were created by him to keep his young mind from going crazy with all the things he was forced to do. Even when he was on the stand, he had to let the other side of him show so that he could make it through all the PTSD of it. Uh, he himself was uh, kidnapped and forced into this lifestyle and supposedly was even held at gunpoint when they told him to molest Johnny. Uh, the last conversation that Noreen and Paul had, they were in a restaurant and sat in the corner. Uh, two men had come in and sat at the booth and kept staring at Benassi and Noreen. They kept making gestures with their hands and it terrified them. Both Rusty Nielsen and Paul Benassi have pointed out and confirmed a lot of higher-ups and political figures who were involved and that Rusty had taken photos of with young kids. A private investigator was hired by the Nebraska State Legislature, and his name was Gary Corridani. Uh, Gary had been investigating all of this with all the kids coming forward, and Gary got a call to meet Rusty Nielsen, uh, who had been hiding ever since the Franklin Credit Union broke, uh, to meet him in Chicago. Gary was a pilot, and he had his own plane, and he told his wife before he left on that trip that I know what happened to Johnny Gosh now, and when I get back from Chicago, I'm calling his parents. Uh, he got on this plane and took his son with him, um, and the story was going to be that he was taking his son to a Chicago Cubs game. They flew into Chicago at... At the game, he met Rusty, and Rusty gave him all of the photographs of the VIPs. Uh, Gary then got on the plane and called Senator Lauren Schmidt and said, I will be back in Nebraska by morning. I'll be in court. I've got it, and we're going to nail them. Gary got on, his plane, got on his plane, took off, and over the state of Illinois, his plane exploded in the air. Oh, dude, what in the <laughs> Yeah. The wreckage came crashing down to the ground in a field. Uh, both Gary and his son were killed. A, a farmer saw the wreckage and went out amongst all the debris, and the farmer began picking up all these uh, pornography photos of the VIPs. Um, the, the FBI showed up and seized all the pictures and told the farmer to get out of the field and never speak of this again. 
They then loaded the wreckage on a flatbed and hauled it to a military base. Usually they don't do that, you know what I mean? Like, it's a wrecked plane, why are they taking this to a military base? Dude, but, that's why you run out there with a video camera, you, you, you just fucking <laughs> record everything that you can, and I know this is the 80s, like but you, <laughs> before you die, you want to upload this on YouTube or something. Holy hell. Right. So, poor Gary's wife received a phone call that his plane went down um, and that he was dead. Uh, the next day, the FBI came and raided his office, and there were rumors that what caused his plane to explode was someone shot an RPG and took down his plane with his son inside of it. Okay, is this like the? Is there pedophiles in the FBI? Because now I'm I have no faith in the government, dude. I, I didn't in the first place, yeah. but uh, now now I'm thinking uh, I'm now thinking that this is like a politician or you know. So yeah, the, those. Um, Photos of all the VIPs that they're talking about actually go all the way to the White House. And there were parties underneath the White House as well um, that this same guy threw. So it does go quite deep, but I didn't have enough factual evidence to get that side of the story in with it. So, Yo, yo, dude, this is a podcast where you can get on (laughs) and you can talk about fact, myth, legend, true or false. Uh, I know, I know. And so uh, speculation is... keep it to the real as possible. (laughs) (laughs) So, but yes, uh, it goes all the way up to the big house, if you know what I'm saying. God damn, dude. Yeah, another uh, death of this case, because of this case, was a young man named Troy Bonner. Troy had also testified in the court with Benassi, uh, he was also one of the young children who was abused, and uh, Troy had skipped town shortly after the trial, and no one knew where he where he was. But one day, Troy had hurt his leg, and he had to go to the hospital. Uh, his injury wasn't too bad, they said, but they wanted to keep him overnight just in case, and uh, the nurses were making their rounds in the middle of the night and came in to see him sitting upright with his mouth full of blood, dead. The toxicology report that came back on Troy was an overdose. But the thing is that Troy didn't use drugs, and he didn't come in with any baggage or anything in his pockets. He literally just came in off the street because he hurt his leg. Dude, so, what? The, the yeah. story's fucking insane. Like, yeah. it never so they're, ends. <laughs> they're trying to get this guy to be quiet. Apparently, another news reporter wanted to do an interview with him. And... um. You know, this was after the case and and reveal some of the other names of the higher ups that he had met. And uh, apparently somebody wanted to silence him for for all the people listening. Just so you know, there's tons of evidence of the FBI and CIA uh, censoring uh, the news and uh, information. So uh, just so you know, do some research. Okay, continue. This is fucking crazy, dude. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So Paul Benassi and other boys were controlled by these elite pedophiles by force and by fear. Uh, They made all of them commit felonies so that they would be wanted by the police and so that they would never be able to get away. I mean, that if they did manage to escape or run away, you know what I mean? The cops are automatically looking at them anyways for a felony that they committed that they were forced into. Um, Others would be forcefully addicted to drugs and forced to stay for the, you know, drug for sex stuff. And uh, others would be uh, under... A mind control. Um, this is coming from Benassi and, and Noreen's book. 
uh, it was called the Project Monarch, and it was formed by MK Ultra. Now, if anybody knows who M or what MK Ultra was, but during the Cold War, the government created a section of the government called MK Ultra. It was a thing that dealt with mind control and psychic warfare and sleeper cells and all sorts of stuff like that. But some of these darker agents went ahead and took it onto the streets and the pedophiles got their hands on it and are using it on the kids. So that's, I mean, that's a whole nother podcast to do. It's a whole nother story, but <laughs> uh, they use these kids to uh, run drugs, uh, spy on other people to do prostitution. They already knew how Monarch would work on uh, runaways and homeless kids. So they decided to try it on some of the normal kids to see how it would work out. And uh, even if it wor would work better. Um, Noreen to this day hasn't seen her son again, but she believes that he is still alive. And uh, that's my story for you guys today. Johnny Gosh has been clapped. John, I am I am so impressed by today's story, dude. Holy hell. I'm pissed. Great story, but I'm pissed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. So cool. I'm glad I you all like I forgot to bring this up a little bit earlier, but I actually just watched a 1986 film with uh, uh, Sylvester, dude, the Rocky Bamboa guy. Oh, yeah. Have you seen the, the, the movie Cobra? I have not, no. So it's about a biker gang that's a, the, the axe cult where they gather around and they hit these like axes above their head. They go around and they target women. And uh, he's like this police dude that comes in and uh, learns about the cult and ends up like taking them all out, dude. Freaking crazy. Huh. That sounds kind of cool, man. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I should watch it for sure. Thanks, everyone, for hopped in. Like I said, Sean, absolutely great story. Uh, got my blood pumping, got me thinking. I was actually Googling a lot of stuff about this story. Uh, the Instagram post is up on Instagram if you guys want to go check it out. Other than that, uh, we'll see you guys on Sunday. Other than that, have a good rest of your week, and we'll see you later. Peace.